This week, COP23, the annual climate conference, is running in Bonn, Germany. We have a report from a man on the ground. The US is not participating, at least not in a positive way. The UN is warning of an emissions gap while levels of CO2 and methane are racing ahead. Should we be driving electric cars? Well, they're clean, aren't they? Some claim that they're just as dirty as combustion engine vehicles. Client Earth is still trying to get the UK government to clean up the air. Water fountains are fizzing in Paris. Juliana seems to have new friends. And how precious is plastic? Hello, yes, once again it's me, Anthony Day. And here's the Sustainable Futures report for Friday the 10th of November. I hope you enjoyed last week's report. It's a change for me to be interviewed rather than doing the interviewing. Having said that, at the conference that I was running last weekend, I was interviewed by another podcaster. And if you're really interested, but it's nothing to do with sustainability, you can find a link to that on the blog. Remember that the blog is at sustainablefutures.report. And I try to include as many links as possible so that you can find exactly where I've got my stories from. Let me take a moment to remind you about patreon.com slash sfr. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sfr. You can sign up there to support my work from as little as a dollar a month. Yes, I know it's an American site. I'm very grateful to those patrons who already support me from the UK, from the Netherlands and from Canada amongst other places. Let's start today with the fourth national climate assessment issued by the US government last week. Let me quote from the executive summary. The climate of the United States is strongly connected to the changing global climate. The statements below highlight past, current and projected climate changes for the United States and the globe. Global annually average surface air temperature has increased by about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit or 1 degree centigrade over the last 115 years. This period is now the warmest in the history of modern civilization. The last few years have also seen record-breaking climate-related weather extremes, and the last three years have been the warmest years on record for the globe. These trends are expected to continue over climate timescales. This assessment concludes based on extensive evidence that it is extremely likely that human activities, especially emissions of greenhouse gases, are the dominant cause of the observed warming since the mid-20th century. For the warming over the last century, there is no convincing alternative explanation supported by the extent of the observational evidence. Later on, it says global average sea levels are expected to continue to rise by at least several inches in the next 15 years and by one to four feet, that's round about a metre, by 2100. A rise of as much as two and a half metres by 2100 cannot be ruled out. Sea level rise will be higher than the global average on the east and gulf coasts of the United States. 
Changes in the characteristics of extreme events are particularly important for human safety, infrastructure, agriculture, water quality and quantity, and natural ecosystems. Heavy rainfall is increasing in intensity and frequency across the United States and globally, and is expected to continue to increase. Heat waves have become more frequent in the United States since the 1960s, while extreme cold temperatures and cold waves are less frequent. Recent record-setting hot years are projected to become common in the near future for the United States as annual average temperatures continue to rise. It goes on. Humanity's effect on the Earth system through the large-scale combustion of fossil fuels and widespread deforestation and the resulting release of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, as well as through the emissions of other greenhouse gases and radiatively active substances from human activities, is unprecedented. There is significant potential for humanity's effect on the planet to result in unanticipated surprises and a broad consensus that the further and faster the Earth system is pushed towards warming, the greater the risk of such surprises. All this, of course, is in conflict with President Trump's rejection of climate science. He's already said and subsequently confirmed that the United States will withdraw from the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Only two countries originally rejected the agreement, Nicaragua and Syria. Nicaragua's objection was on the basis that the agreement didn't go far enough, but it changed its mind and has now signed up. At COP23 this week, that's the climate conference taking place in Bonn, Syria announced that it would also sign up. That leaves the United States on the outside as soon as it can extricate itself. Unsurprisingly, President Trump is the only world leader not invited to the climate conference which will take place in Paris later this month, after COP23. According to the Independent newspaper, some are calling for the US to be excluded from COP23 altogether. The Paris Accord demonstrates a near-universal acceptance of the need to manage carbon emissions. However, in its annual review, the UN says the gap between carbon-cutting plans and the reductions required to keep temperature rises below 2 degrees C is alarmingly high. It reiterates the point that current pledges are insufficient to keep within the temperature limits agreed in the Paris Climate Pact. According to the BBC, emissions from human activities involving burning fossil fuels have stalled since 2014, caused by a reduction in coal use in China and the US, as well as by the rapid rise of renewable energy sources. Nevertheless, concentrations of CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere surged to a record high in 2016, according to the World Meteorological Organization. Last year's increase was 50% higher than the average of the past 10 years. Researchers say a combination of human activities and the El Nino weather phenomenon drove CO2 to a level not seen in 800,000 years. And they say this risks making global temperature targets largely unattainable. The World Meteorological Organization reports that levels of methane and nitrous oxide are also at record levels. You'll remember that methane is a greenhouse gas many times more potent than CO2. 
Medical journal The Lancet added its concerns about climate change to the debate this week. It says, Climate change is commonly discussed in the context of its future impact, but the Lancet Countdown on Health and Climate Change by Nick Watts and colleagues, published on the 30th of October, exposes the urgency for a response as environmental changes cause damaging effects on health worldwide now. This comprehensive review describes the first results of a global initiative which will annually report on indicators of climate change and its effects on health. One alarming finding is how rising temperatures have influenced the transmission of infectious diseases. Vectorial capacity of Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus, I think those are mosquitoes, has increased since 1990 with tangible effects, notably the doubling of cases of dengue fever every decade since 1990. Find the full text at thelancet.com. The eternal question, what should we be doing about it? Well, maybe we should cut our personal emissions by all driving electric cars. But it's not as simple as that. Some people are questioning whether electric cars are truly cleaner than conventional internal combustion vehicles. The Financial Times reports that a large electric car can have much greater emissions than a small conventional car. This, of course, is taking into account life cycle emissions. In other words, the emissions involved in the manufacture of the vehicle and its final disposal, as well as any emissions created during its operational life. Low-emission cars are commonly defined by the volume of emissions coming out of the exhaust pipe. Electric cars don't have an exhaust pipe, so they are classed as 100% clean. The study quoted by the FT takes into account the emissions involved in creating the electricity to charge up electric cars. If this is coming from coal, there are significant indirect emissions. The other major source of emissions is the actual production of the vehicle. Producing the battery for the electric car leads to emissions and there are also ethical doubts about the source of materials for the batteries. We've already spoken in previous episodes about conflict minerals such as cadmium and tantalum which come from mines in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Mines which are defended by child soldiers. Remember Falling Whistles? Yes, go to fallingwhistles.com maybe donate something for Christmas. Tesla's Gigafactory in Nevada plans to rely on wind and solar alone to provide all the energy needed for its battery production. A serious problem with electric cars is range anxiety. The majority of people drive short journeys, rarely more than 80 or 100 miles a day, but nevertheless they want to be able to do those occasional longer journeys, which is why a 200-mile range is rapidly becoming an industry minimum standard. This means bigger batteries, more conflict minerals, more emissions in the production process, and more weight for the car to carry around. According to the American Union of Concerned Scientists, 42% of US households could use a battery electric or plug-in electric vehicle and all households could use a hybrid electric vehicle. Doing so would save drivers billions in fuel costs and greatly reduce the amount of global warming pollution emitted. In fact, widespread adoption of electric cars and trucks could save 1.5 million barrels of oil a day by 2035. To get there, 
the US needs smart government policies that incentivize investment in clean vehicle technology, helping move America toward a cleaner, safer future. The online journal Shrink That Footprint firmly defends electric cars in a detailed report. You can find it at shrinkthatfootprint.com. The authors do admit, however, that the key factor is the source of the electricity, and that in some places an electric car is no cleaner than one that runs on conventional fossil fuels. Scientific American magazine gets in on the debate as well with the headline, Electric Cars Are Not Necessarily Clean. Some manufacturers are clearly aiming for the greenest of the green. The body of BMW's i3 electric car is made from carbon fibre using hydroelectric power in Washington state. It's assembled at a wind-powered plant in Leipzig, where it is fitted with seats made from recycled bottles and coloured by dye from olive leaves. The door panels and dashboard are made from kenaf plants and eucalyptus wood. Even the key is made of castor beans. Kenaf? Yes, I had to look it up too. It's a vegetable fibre like jute. The overall consensus seems to be that it's a good thing to drive an electric car, as long as it's a small one and you recharge it from your solar panels or from another source of renewable energy. There's news this week that the city of Paris plans to install sparkling water dispensers in every one of its 20 arrondissements, or suburbs. Sparkling water will be freely available to all. There have been eight dispensers in the city since 2010, but this expansion comes in order to keep the citizens of Paris hydrated and to discourage the use of plastic bottles. Will your city follow where Paris leads? Talking of plastic bottles, how precious is plastic? I've just come across a website called preciousplastic.com. Preciousplastic.com. The aim of the organisation behind it is to build neighbourhood plastic recycling units in old shipping containers, which can be installed almost anywhere in the world. Some are already up and running, and they take scrap plastic donated by the public, sort it, shred it, and recycle it. They can make filaments for 3D printers. They can make poles and bars. They can make hand grips for climbing walls. They can make plates and dishes. All this from material which otherwise would be burnt or landfilled as rubbish. The website goes into great detail to explain exactly how to site a container and to set up your own plastic recycling plant. Looks quite tempting to me. I'll find out more and keep you informed. Another organisation trying to clean up is Client Earth. I've mentioned Client Earth before. It describes itself as activist lawyers committed to securing a healthy planet. Client Earth is taking legal action against the UK government for a third time over its persistent failure to deal with the illegal air pollution across the country. Anyone following UK politics will probably not be surprised that the government has not been effective on this issue. With a minister having talks with a foreign government and keeping them secret from both her own department and the Prime Minister, whoops, she's just resigned. With the Foreign Secretary making unguarded remarks which could double the sentence of a UK subject imprisoned abroad on political charges. With the Defence Minister forced to resign for sexual impropriety and open disagreement in the Cabinet over the approach to Brexit, it is surprising that anything gets done at all. That doesn't change the importance of the air quality issue. 
40,000 people die prematurely in the UK as the result of bad air quality. I reported recently on the T-charge, introduced by Transport for London as a surcharge on the congestion charge, to be paid for older and dirtier vehicles entering the central area. I commented at the time that Transport for London had used the phrase London's dangerously polluted air. They're certainly taking it seriously. Client Earth firmly believes that the government is not. It is a matter of concern that the judicial system can issue an injunction against the government and the government can simply choose to ignore it. If the government does not respect the law, how can it expect others to do so? Do you remember the Juliana case? It's been rumbling on for some years now. It's an action against the US government by a group of children and young people who want to hold it to account for prejudicing their life chances by allowing industries, such as the coal industry, to create dangerous pollution. Ruling on the next stage of the action is expected early next year. Meanwhile, other litigants are following a similar path. Two Philadelphia-area children are suing President Donald Trump and two of his climate-sceptic cabinet ministers, Energy Secretary Rick Perry and US Environmental Protection Agency, remember him, Scott Pruitt, to try to stop them from rolling back existing environmental protections, including the Clean Power Plan. The plaintiffs, aged 7 and 11, are backed by the Clean Air Council, Philadelphia's oldest environmental non-profit. The complaint alleges that the Trump administration's reliance on junk science to undo climate regulations are a threat to the young plaintiffs and to other US citizens. This one too will probably run and run. Didn't somebody once say that justice delayed is justice denied? As I mentioned earlier, COP23 the UN Climate Conference started this week in Bonn, Germany. Martin Baxter, Chief Policy Advisor of the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, is there, and he told me what's been going on. This interview was done by phone. Apologies for the sound quality. How is it going in Bonn? Uh, very good, actually. Um, I included those uh, awful lot of people here. Um, a lot of activity um, around both adaptation and mitigation. It's great to see a number of developing countries with um, with a presence in the um, the pavilion, so they're um, have a, having side events. Um, and I've just been speaking in the EU events on the role of standards, particularly in the context of adapting to climate adaptation. Um, yeah, so all good. Right. Now, are the Americans there, or are they staying away because they've decided not to have anything to do with Paris? Uh, well, the Americans are here. Um, I think it's a little bit early to see um, exactly how they will play you know, the end game of the negotiations uh, in, in terms of the developments of the rule book. But don't forget, although the Americans have given notice that they intensively, they haven't actually left the Paris Agreement yet. So that takes a number of years to work through. Um, and they're in that in that process of transition. So uh, we shall see whether they are here to. Um, I need to say keep quiet, but um, you know, observe, participate in, in a low key way, or whether they're going to be um, a little bit more pushy towards the end. Um, 
time will tell. I'll know better <laughs> at the end of next week. Right, OK. Um, news this week, the United Nations has published a report where they say that the, the gap between uh, actual uh, emissions and emissions targets is getting frighteningly large. Has that been uh, touched on at all? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that there is a, a widespread agreement that we're not doing things fast enough. And that was recognised in the Paris Agreement in terms of countries developing their methods of determining contributions and then ratcheting them, ratcheting them up over time so they become tougher. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's the key thing for me is to see uh, action on the ground uh, around the world in terms of accelerating um, emissions cuts. Um, we're not doing enough at the moment um, to get to where we need to be, which means that uh, the, the, the emissions reductions in the future will have to be more dramatic uh, in terms of their pace. Yes, well, so you're saying that countries are going to go above and beyond the commitments they made in Paris in 2015. Uh, and will they do that even before the review? Because the first review of the agreement is not due for five years, in other words, 2020. Yeah, I think, you know, the key thing is about whether can, how, how countries are locking in um, emissions reductions and have a clear strategy. I think from the UK perspective, we've got a fairly good handle on where we need to be to 2050. We have a legal process in place with serious carbon budgets. There's more that we need to do, but, you know, the UK's trajectory is that emissions are coming down. Um, I think if you start to look at a one and a half degree warming so moving towards that then it's clear that there are very few if any countries that are really doing it up at all um, and so that's the bit that I think um, we really need to focus on is getting those cuts in uh, particularly the ones that are fairly straightforward to make um, as, as quickly as possible and putting in a framework when emissions, whereby emissions can reduce uh, at a much quicker rate I read this week that not only is carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at an all-time high, but methane is as well, and they don't really know why methane is going up so rapidly. And, of course, that's a very dangerous gas because it's far more potent than CO2. So that could actually increase the pressure on everybody as well. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, it's no surprise that we have record levels of CO2 in the atmosphere simply because the rate at which we are increasing... Um, CO2 in the atmosphere is much faster than we're able to sequestrate them. So it wouldn't surprise me if next year and the year after and the year after that we have um, increasing concentration because we're not at the moment reducing emissions. We're just reducing, the, trying to reduce the rate at which emissions are going into the atmosphere. Um, clearly there's a, you know, a lot of concern about levels of methane in the atmosphere. Um, understanding um, you know, the sources of those and the extent to which we can mitigate them you know, is clearly a big priority um, for scientists around the world um, to get a handle on that and then for politicians to look at what action needs to be taken. Right, now this conference, uh, COP23, is continuing today and I believe it finishes tomorrow, is that correct? Uh, no, it goes on until a week on Friday. So this is um, a two-week process of um, ongoing negotiations between um, different countries, so 195 countries signed the Paris Agreement, and you know they're working on next 
two weeks towards the you know the end of November. I didn't realise it went on that long. Maybe I can talk to you again tomorrow, uh, next week rather, when, uh, uh, when um, more yeah, will have so happened. I, I, I will be speaking next Friday um, on the last day of conference um, on um, the role of standards in mitigation and adapting to climate change um, as part of work that we're doing with ISO. Um, so yeah, I have to speak then. I see. Okay, great. What do you um, expect that we will see as the outcome of COP23? What will, what will they publish to, uh, Friday week? Um, it's, it's slightly difficult to say this early on in this process. I think um, clearly what we need to do is uh, a clear idea of the rules um, going forward. So um, Paris set a framework. Um, it gave a high level target, but then the means by which countries will be um, held to account for delivering those and enhancing their contributions um, has to be worked through. So I don't expect to see movements on that. Whether that will be fully finalised is difficult to say at this moment in time. I think as well, uh, you know, one of the, the most critical things uh, with the announcement by Donald Trump. Um, earlier this year that he intended to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement. Um, the big question mark was whether anybody else would follow. And the Paris Agreement is a political agreement um, across a huge number of countries. And ensuring that that sticks when one of the big actors um, states that they're coming out is a critical in many ways, the, the most important piece coming out of here is that there remains um, a consensus um, on the need for action to tackle climate change. Um, we need to retain uh, all those other countries around the world as part of this process. And that's, you know, in terms of the big picture, is really important. Well, it seems to be holding at the moment, of course, because the two dissenting countries apart from the United States were Nicaragua and Syria and they have both actually come into the fold haven't they and agreed that they will sign up. Uh, China for the moment at least is there. China is now by far the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. Um, the United States of course is saying that they are going to rejuvenate their coal industry but do you think that is really going to have a, a, a significant effect or might we see Australia which has also got big coal reserves deciding that it'll follow and lead to things start of falling apart um, well in terms of um, coal you know, I think um, from, what, from what we can see um, the basic economics um, suggest that there are uh, much cheaper forms of electricity generation um, and, and so just I think um, over time, coal is just going to get more difficult um, as a business anyway, and therefore there will be a gradual closing out. It's not clear to me that um, it's out of some way of thinking in terms of um, its advocacy for coal, but there's a great appetite um, within the US at state level um, or from those who wish to invest to actually support old technology by like that. Um, so my sense is that there is a, a bigger shift away from coal and that over time that will accelerate as the costs of other forms of clean energy, electricity generation.
is twofold. One is, of course, action to mitigate uh, climate change in terms of emissions reductions and to get those down as quickly as possible. But the other big part of the agreement was climate finance, and in particular the financial support for developing countries so they can leapfrog over old technologies in terms of their development without being financially penalised. So um, that's the bit that I think is probably the most problematic aspect, is how do we, in the face of the US coming out, um, support financially uh, the, the deployment of green tech, green tech around the world, uh, and as, as a form of like, compensation for uh, other developing countries not wanting to go to the same Right, that's a very interesting thought. Thank you, Martin. And and thank you for briefing us on what's going on in Bonn. Um, we hey, shall pleasure. have to see how it uh, develops. Martin Baxter, Chief Policy Advisor at the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. And that's it for another week. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. Thanks again to my patrons. Thanks to Martin. Oh, and if you're not yet a, part, a patron, just go across to patreon.com slash SFR and sign up. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash SFR. There will probably be another Sustainable Futures Report next week, but as we go into December, I may reduce the frequency. This is partly because I've got a lot on and partly because I'm sure you'll have a lot on as we run up to Christmas. Anyway, thanks for listening to this episode. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm Anthony Day, and that's it for now. <music>